I have wanting to return to Judges because I want to show you the great grace that we see in this text in Judges 15, all of Judges 15, verses 1 through 20. But before we hear God's word read, let us go to him asking for his help. Our God, you're full of grace, and that grace is manifested in so many ways. We pray, Lord, that by the reading of this, your word, we would see that grace, that you would enlighten our eyes to see our own sin, but also, and especially, the sweetness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This is Judges chapter 15. Hear now the word of God. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Atom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called Inhakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It doesn't happen much in Fayetteville. In fact, it rarely happens. But you know what happens to a little snowball as it goes down a snowy hill or a mountain. As it rolls down, it grows in size, it gets bigger and bigger, and it comes down faster and faster. It doesn't take very long before what once could fit in the palm of a single hand now takes a couple of big, burly guys to to move or to hold. Opposition or disagreement sometimes can be a lot like that. A pebble in someone's shoe soon becomes a boulder that has toppled them. Just go on Facebook, if you dare, and start talking theology, politics, or pretty much anything. It won't be long before you or someone comments, well, that escalated quickly. In our text this morning, there is definitely some escalation going on between Samson and the Philistines. One of the questions, however, we must ask is this. How much is Samson to blame for this escalation? Is he a hothead? Easily provoked by the prodding Philistines? Is he about to blow his lid? What about the Philistines and the men of Judah? Do the Philistines, do those 3,000 men of Judah, mete out justice in a measured way? There's a lot of hurt all around There's a lot of perception of injustice, and there is a substantive desire to be at peace, though they all seem to disagree about how that peace is to be carried out. People want justice. People want calm. They want to return to the way things used to be. Through all of this, however, we see that the Lord maneuvers human efforts at vengeance to bring about both divine vengeance and satisfying salvation. Vengeance is mine, saith the blind. Look again at verse 1 with me. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And so some days after his wedding and Samson's taking leave of his wife that we saw earlier, He wishes now to return to her. He wishes now to win her back. In his mind, and according to the law of the Bible, she remains his wife. And so, he knows that he never should have left her. He was wrong to have abandoned his wife. He never should have left her. And he knows this. And so what does he do? He tries to make amends by offering a young goat to her, which is, considering the times, a good thing. Even though today we might direct his steps to the local florist instead. Surprisingly, Samson is denied his wife by her father. Instead, he has offered her sister by their insulting wife, or by their insulting father. He says, I got a more beautiful daughter for you. Don't you want her? And by the way, I thought that you had utterly hated your wife, which wasn't an unreasonable thinking. And so he says, I'm sorry. I already gave her to your best man. 
Sometimes we really lay it on thick on Samson. But sometimes we should kind of mourn with him. He lost his wife to his best man. That's the stuff of movies. Offended in Samson's eyes, what will he do? What he seeks out to do, he says, will be just. In his mind, in his thinking, he will carry out justice. And in a matter-of-fact summary of Samson's conduct, the author tells us that Samson goes out and he catches 300 foxes. Can you imagine the feat? Sometimes in our neighborhood, as I drive, there's a fox. It's in the woods, a little forest area. I'm in my car, and I see it, and it'd be great to go to it, maybe pet it or something. But I can't even get out of the car before it scurries off into the woods. That's what we're talking about one fox. I'm told that foxes have a reputation for being foxy. We're not talking one fox. We're talking 300 foxes. He had to find one fox after another fox. Maybe they were in groups. Still a challenge. He had to catch all of the foxes. He had to keep all the foxes contained. He had to then tie up the tails, which seems also like a really, like a significant challenge to tie up foxtails. And not just that, but he had to put torches in the tails. And not just that, he had to let these foxes loose when it was ready. And not just that, he had to direct the foxes to the intended area, the standing grain, the olive orchards. How could he do that? Well, only by the power of the Spirit. As he was empowered to do with the lion back in chapter 14, he has the power to catch foxes. Now, we might feel bad for the foxes. You might, upon reading this, shed a tear for these foxes. And that's okay. It is true that we cannot say as a disclaimer, no animals were hurt in the filming of this story. I'm sorry to say, these foxes were set ablaze, and they were no more. They're gone. But if we fix our eyes on the fate of these foxes, we are losing sight of Samson's action. Does Samson go overboard? Now, some would say yes. But notice what he does not touch. He ruins their grain. He ruins their wheat harvest. He does not touch any other people. Now, of course, he makes survival harder. This is, you could say, a a small, like a microcosm of a man-made famine. He just made it really hard for the Philistines to eat. But it's actually the Philistines, in this instance, who escalate the conflict. Look with me at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. If this were a game of poker, then the Philistines saw Samson's burning of their grain, and they then raised him the burning of his wife and father-in-law. They escalated. 
And the tragic irony in this whole instance is that the very thing that his wife sought to avoid in chapter 14 by coaxing the riddle out of Samson is actually what, hap- what ends up happening to her. You recall that Philistines threatened her to get, that, get the interpretation out of Samson. Or we're going to burn you and your father. And she colludes with them. She wins the day. She's saved. And yet here we have, again, the Philistines, because they lost some grain, destroy his wife and his father-in-law. It is truly tragic. But how does Samson respond? Verses 7 and 8. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Atom. I would submit to you that he reacts rather calmly and justly, considering that his wife and his father-in-law had just been murdered. Put yourself in his shoes. Applying the biblical law of eye for an eye, that, by the way, is a biblical law, and giving these murderers their due, and because he was a judge, he could then carry out justice, he strikes them down, and then what does he do? He quits. Justice has been served. He leaves them. Hardly a hothead, here is a judge who carries out justice for the Lord. The application here is that the world's ways of justice are not the word's way of justice. Justice in the world is giving people what they deserve. That is to say, their privilege, however that is to be defined. Even if that means forcing it upon those who do not think that people deserve things they haven't worked for. Justice is reproductive rights, meaning I can murder my child. Justice, according to the world, is not simply living with those who have different sexual proclivities, but celebrating it. Not just tolerance, but because tolerance means celebration in the world's mind. Justice, according to the world, is recently seen in a Satanist teaming up with Target to target your children with transgender clothing. But justice, according to the word, is justice according to the king overall, Jesus Christ, who is the just man. Justice is saying no to abortion. Justice is saying no to fake marriages. It is saying no to all the practices that God forbids in his law, as summarized by the Ten Commandments. And saying yes to all of the conduct and all of the character that Christ commends to us all. You do know that the world will stop at nothing to get what it wants. Will Christians stop at nothing to baptize and disciple the nations, teaching them everything that Christ commands? Are we, are we Christians committed to the Great Commission, come what may? And by the way, You know what the Great Commission says, just summarized it for you. There is baptism, and there is teaching, and it's not teaching some things only. It is teaching everything that Christ commands. And what does that include? 
Old Testament, New Testament, Scripture. If all of Scripture is fulfilled by Christ, if all of Scripture points to the Christ, and it does, and Christ has given us his word in the Old Testament Scriptures, and Christ has given us his word in the Gospels, and Christ has given us his word through his apostles in the letters, then all of that is teaching. And that is what we as Christians are to be about. That includes, that's in the category of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not simply, you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that is the doctrine on which this church will stand or fall. There's no doubt about that. That is the ground upon which all the instruction is given. That is who you are, and that's how you are declared righteous, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And that Great Commission includes that, is grounded upon that, but is much more than that. That's what our reformers have taught us, that a robust Reformation mindset includes teaching Christ's commands in all that he says. Why? Because we want to be robust Christians. We want to be full of the Spirit. Every single aspect of our lives, we want to conform to the image of Christ. Sometimes it is said that our sanctification is simply remembering our justification, and that is a ground on which we are sanctified. We do recall our justification. We must every single morning remember that we are justified by faith alone, by grace alone. In Christ alone, we must. And let us keep going. Let us keep learning who this Christ is. Let us keep seeing the heinousness of our sins and going to the cross and say, forgive me for these sins. And O Spirit, continue to work in me that I might be more like Christ my Savior. If you want more of that and you weren't at the ABF lesson, go ahead and listen to that later this day or this week. Are we committed to the Great Commission more than the world is committed at converting us? Well, there is an eyes-for-an-eye theology that is not biblical. It's unmeasured. It is, it is contrary to the, the measure of, the, of, of law. Verse 9, we see, Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. As we keep reading, we see that the Philistines again escalate this conflict, this time by raiding a town in Judah, Lehi, near where Samson was. Confusing their desires with justice, sometimes we tend to do that, don't we? Just because I want something means I am just to get it. Confusing their desires with justice, they think that they are acting justly. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said in verse 10, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. And the Philistines are saying to those in Lehi, he took out, Samson took out some of our people. You guys are near him, and so we're just going to take out some of his people. It's just business, nothing personal. To which, of course, the men of Judah would say, well, it is a bit personal to us persons whose lives you are threatening. But notice the, the perversion of uh, this event here. When confronted by 3,000 men of Judah, Samson believes he has acted justly. In verse 11, 
says, he says to the men of Judah, as they did to me, so have I done to them. Who confronted Samson? It is the men of Judah. Do you see that? It's his own. His own people are confronting him. And do you notice what they say? The accusation that they make. What have you done to us? Samson, what have you done to us, your people? I thought we were on the same team. Samson, you're a bad, you're a bad judge. Unwise, too vengeful. They forget that they're forgetting that the Philistines are the enemy. Their problem is in thinking that Samson was their problem and not their deliverer, not their solution, not the remedy, not the God-appointed, spirited man to deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. If you read the book of Judges, as we've been doing, these Philistines are the final oppressors in the book. With Jephthah, we already saw the Ammonites. We've seen earlier Midianites and others. Now we have one final enemy, the Philistines. And it is Samson that the Lord raised to deliver, at least to begin, remember, who will begin to deliver? To begin to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Philistines. And here they have the Savior right in front of them, and they say, go ahead, you go to the Philistines because you're causing a problem. As if war is to be understood as peace. He was the one who got in the way rather than the one who would lead them out of the way of the Philistines. And so do you see this collusion between those in Judah and the Philistines? This is not, you could say, uh, like a, a knowing collusion in the sense where they're saying to the Philistines, hey, will you come and get this guy because he is a problem for us? It's they want to save their bottoms. They don't want to be killed, which is a reasonable desire. Charles Simeon says, We do not wonder that the Philistines sought to take him. We only wonder that his own countrymen did not embrace this opportunity of uniting with him to shake off the yoke of their oppressors. Philistines are going to Philistine. That's in their nature. That's what they're going to do. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when you're suffering for the sake of Christ. As if something strange were happening to you, Peter says. But shouldn't we be surprised if our own are coming up against us? That's what Simeon is saying. These men of Judah are coming up against their own Savior. And let me take you back to the very beginning of the book of Judges. Judges 1.1, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites? Which tribe shall we choose to lead us in battle? Chapter 1, verse 2, Judah. You shall rise in battle, Judah. Fearing the Lord over all of his enemies, Judah rose to battle. But now, fearing the Philistines, Judah rises to battle still, but against Samson. Certainly they mean peace. Of course they mean peace. They promise not to kill him. We're not going to kill you, Samson. Remember he made them promise that? Of course, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to hand you over to someone who will. 
We're just going to hand over our only hope of deliverance to them, and they'll do the dirty work. The application point here is that when the church colludes with the world, the world wins. The world will make no compromises. There is no symbiotic relationship between the world and the church. At least there mustn't be. And oh, how many compromises the church has made in her history. Many in the church in the 1800s caved under the pressure of the world to own slaves. And they even cited scripture to support that abominable practice. Many in the church have caved under the pressure of the world to allow for abortions. And of course, they've cited themes of love and care to support this kind of behavior. Many in the church today have caved under the pressure of the world to feminize the pulpit. I don't know if you've been keeping track of what's going on in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, but they had their assembly, I think a week before the Presbyterians, the PCA had had theirs. And one man had done some research, and he found that in 1,255 churches, SBC churches, 1,844 women were in a pastoral role. And that's been quite an issue over the last number of decades. And so what the SBC does, or did, is it amended the Constitution to not affirm, appoint, or employ a woman as a pastor of any kind. Now, this, this awaits approval next year. That's a good step, isn't it? You can highlight the usefulness of women in ministry and not give them titles that they shouldn't have or roles they shouldn't have. In fact, our own denomination has been dealing with this as well. And an overture was given to that effect, to not give a title to anyone like pastor or elder or deacon that is not an ordained office bearer, according to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And that still awaits um, more work. More on that later. Many in the church have caved under the pressure of the world to govern the church as if it were a business. But it is not. And so the church can sleep with the enemy, thinking that as long as she keeps him happy and satisfied, he will never turn on her. But this is self-deception in the interest of peace, which is a false peace. Like an abusive husband, he will simply take advantage of her time and again. He will never receive. He will just, or he will, he will never give. He will just take and take and take. That's what the world will do. The world will take and take and take more and more from the church. And we, sometimes we are just too happy to give it for the sake of, I don't know, peace, evangelism. But that's not true peace. True peace is found in the gospel. And the world hates the gospel. If we want the world to have true peace, we must give them the way to that true peace. And that means standing firm on what Christ has said. That means standing firm on what sin really is and who the Savior really is. True peace comes when the church is used by God to put down the enemy to sleep. When it is under her feet that Satan is being crushed. Make no mistakes, dear ones. The Christ makes no compromises with the world. 
1 John 3, 8, it's very clear. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Not to play around with him. Not to eat the flesh and just spit out the bones. To destroy the works of the devil. James 4. If you are a friend of God, you are an enemy to the world. If you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy to God. You cannot have both friendship with God and with the world. This does not mean that you don't preach peace to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that everyone who believes upon him shall have eternal life. So we can preach that to the world. And we are thankful, are we not, that God has taken people from the world into his home, into his kingdom. We are to call those in the world to repent and to turn to Christ alone for salvation. This is exactly what Christ has done for us. Christ has called us out of darkness and into his light. Christ has called us out of death and into his life. He has called us out of an old creation, creation in the old Adam, and has brought us into this new creation. We are new creatures in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. He has preached peace to our hearts. He has made us new. He has justified us. He has adopted us. He is sanctifying us. He is causing us to persevere. He has loved us with an everlasting love. That is why we do what we do. That is why we preach peace to the world. That is why we give the gospel to the world. Well, vengeance is mine, saith the divine. Go look at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. Justice and salvation kiss at the end of this chapter. Do you see this? The Lord tolerated no longer this Philistine escalation of evil. But justice comes from the Lord. It is the Spirit of the Lord who rushes upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord loosens Samson's bonds. The Spirit of the Lord uses Samson to terminate a thousand Philistines with a fresh donkey jawbone. Praise be to God. A fresh one. So it's got all those teeth intact. This is a long jaw. Some of you have seen one. I have one in my office. Haven't hurt anyone with it, of course. I don't know if he split the jaw in two. In one hand, the other hand, went to town. If he just wielded it as it was intact, it doesn't matter. He used it to the glory of God. He used it to carry out divine vengeance, to carry out justice. Matthew Henry says, When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, his cords were loosed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And those are free indeed. Who are thus set free. So, what do we see but swift justice? What does Samson do after the battle? He casts aside its instrument. He puts aside the instrument of war because he's done carrying out justice. Hardly a hothead, here is a judge who is seeking peace and justice within measure. The sad reality was that his own countrymen never joined him in the battle. That was the, that was the significant problem. Gordon Ketty in his commentary says, Samson was God's loner for the sake of God's people. But he didn't have to be God's loner. This is not one of those, the situation was not like Gideon, 
when he had to reduce the numbers. It was more like Jephthah when he called upon others, the Ephraimites, and said, come and fight with me, and they never came. But in God's providence, we have a lone Savior. Another man says, Samson fought alone against the enemies of Israel and not like the other judges at the head of an army. In all this, Samson is a type of Christ, the strong hero from the tribe of Judah, who for the good of the people fought difficult battles, and that all alone, without anyone helping him. We're going to see more of Samson's weakness next couple weeks. But I think these guys are right when they're, when they're highlighting what God is doing in the life of this weak servant. Here we have a single, solitary Savior, lowercase s, Savior. And with faith, this strong judge acknowledges the divine hand that directed his own to bring down the enemy. Verse 18, look at it, look at it with me. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die, for th- die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So justice comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Samson here is trusting in that Savior that his parents had trusted in years before. He's entrusting his life to the Lord. But things things aren't computing with him. He wonders, how can I, a hammer in God's hand, or more accurately, a donkey jawbone in God's hands, how can I fall in the hands of the uncircumcised, these oppressive Philistines. If I'm your judge, if I'm your deliverer, if I'm given by you, God, for these Israelites, how can I then fall into the hands of these enemies? And dying of thirst, he is soon to collapse to the ground. And what does he do here but confess his own desperation before his God? So he falls down, asking God for help. Dale Ralph Davis says, here is Samson dependent on Yahweh. Here is the Savior confessing that he needs to be saved. And what does God do? God does for Samson what he does for all who call upon his name for salvation. He gives it. He gives salvation to all who call upon his name. He gives wisdom to all who call upon his name for wisdom. He gives mercy to all who call upon his name for mercy. He gives grace to all who call upon his name for grace. He gives patience to all who call upon his name for patience. He gives joy to all who call upon his name for joy. He gives kindness to all who call upon his name for kindness. And on and on, he gives. Our God gives. That's who he is. He's a giver. He is gracious. He gives to us. He gave to Samson. He gives to us. He gives to all who recognize their desperation, who don't lean upon their own strength, but upon the strength of the Lord. Satisfaction comes from the Lord. Verse 19, And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. This is why I had us read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. 
recalling the days of Moses and the rock, which was Christ. The Lord here revives the spirit of this man, Samson. The Lord satisfies the thirst quench of this judge. For when Samson is weak before the Lord, then he is strong. And that is the case for all of us. So Paul says, when we are weak, then we are strong. Not because of any strength that we muster up, but because of the strength that comes from God. Divine satisfaction then requires a renaming of Jawbone Hill to Enhakore, the caller's spring. Again, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be heard by this all-satisfying Lord. Do you call upon the name of the Lord? Obviously, foundationally, for your own salvation, for your own justification. But then do you continually call upon the name of the Lord? Every morning do you wake up in prayer calling upon the name of the Lord? Or do you think you can handle the day's challenges all by yourself? Do you think you can handle the day's sadness all by yourself? Or maybe with the help of a, of a friend or family member. They are helpful, but they are not the Lord. Do you call upon the name of the Lord for all of life and godliness, for all that you need, for all that you need to be equipped to do? Do you call upon the name, not of yourself, for you are weak, but of the Lord, for he is strong. Samson's might was never in his hands. It was never in those fiery foxes. It was never in the jawbone, but always in the Lord who ensures both justice and salvation. Divine vengeance and satisfying salvation are found in the Son of God alone. The Son used those accusing words of the enemy, and by that I mean the Israelites in his day, to be brought before Pilate. We don't wonder that the, why the Romans would want to take down Christ. But we do wonder, we ought to wonder, why those men of Judah cried out for his blood. Here they have the Savior, their only hope before them, and they say, crucify him, let his blood be upon us and our children. And in a great salvation irony, that was the very thing God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit used to bring salvation. The Son used the Romans' instrument of squashing their enemies, that repulsive, rugged cross. He used that instrument of war to put an end to all of our sin. And the judge's son, in a classic judo move, uses all of Satan's strength against him. Oh, Satan thought he won that day, did he not? He thought, finally, Jesus is done. I've defeated him. He was, a, he was a strong enemy, but I took him down. Look at him. He's dead on the cross. He's now in a tomb. He's, he's gone forever. You just picture this, you know, this divine smile. You thought so, Satan. But the Lord uses your actions and rises, raises Jesus from the dead. Christ dies on the cross, declares it is finished, and he moves the cross aside, he moves the stone aside, and rises from the dead. 
He thirsted on the cross. But his heart's thirst quench wasn't for a little bit of water, as it was for Samson, but for the living waters that would flow from his beautiful blood and his almighty spirit into our hearts. His satisfaction would culminate in calling upon the Father who hears, in being heard by the Father yet put to death, forsaken during the wrath of God, in being raised by his Father on that third day, and ascending to his Father to claim his crown and to ensure our eternal satisfaction in him alone. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, what a marvelous text to see the blending of justice and salvation. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the victory that we have because of Jesus. Transform us more and more each day. Help us, Lord, to call upon you more and more each day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like the elders to come on up to prepare.